Hello and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our goal is to help people all around the world experience the love and power of Jesus and live passionately devoted to Him. We pray that the podcast is just that for you. Thank you for joining us on this journey and may burning witnesses arise for Him all around the world. All right, good evening. Everybody doing well? How many of you had an amazing day? All right, that's not enough of you. Maybe you didn't hear what I said. How many of you had an amazing day? Woo, come on. Even on my worst day, it's always better with Jesus. Come on. For some of you, if you can remember what life was like before he found you, your best day without him doesn't compare to your worst day with him. All right. Um, tough crowd. We'll get there. It's all right. Uh, let's open up our Bibles. To You brought your Bible? Come on. I'm excited about the Word of God. Okay. All right. Let's open up to Acts 13. Um, I believe that I've been given an assignment over a variety of sessions to be with you this weekend. Uh, last night, our consideration would have been the church. Um, tonight, we are going to consider the calling of the church. And then tomorrow morning, if the Lord doesn't return, right, should Jesus tarry and we have the opportunity to gather together, uh, we will consider the commissioning of the church. So the church, the church is calling and the church is commissioning. And last night we considered from God's perspective, we attempted to create a biblical frame for the jealousy that the father has to present his son that he loves and honors with the people that the bridegroom believes is to die for. Um, The bridegroom believes his bride is to die for. Um, Jesus thinks you are to die for. Um, Now I get it. He does leave the 99 to go looking for the one. And that's amazing, but Paul's charge in Corinthians is to put out the one to preserve the 99. So we have to keep balance so that we don't get self-absorbed. Because it's not about us, it's about him, and that's why it's good news. Um, The gospel is not about us, it's about God. And that's why it's good news, is because it's about him. And he is good news because he's nothing like us. Um, And no matter how hard we might, um, he's not interested in conforming to our image. He has a goal, and that's to conform those that believe to the image of his son. And so this family of new creatures, this heavenly colony of a new creation, these Hebrew 11 exiles who have forsaken the dreams of this life, and are now passing through, seeking a city whose maker and builder is God, who are in the midst of it, but don't necessarily belong to it. They are in it, but not of it, like Jesus prays in John 17. Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but send them into the world the same way that I myself have been sent into the world. The same way that I have been apostelloed, I've been commissioned, I've been divinely sent. Send them into the world. They are in it, but they are not of it. So we are now a part of this great, Hebrews 11 company. We're a new creation. We're heavenly colonies, 
planted across the nations of the earth. And now our, our very way of life together embodies a reality that could only be made possible with a divine source. We are divinely, dynamically transformed from the inside out. We've been raised from the dead. We are now alive to God and dead to dead works. All of these sin-filled, sin-satisfied cravings, we are a Genesis um, new creation and a Galatians 5 spirit people. And this spirit people, Paul says, when you walk in the spirit and live by the spirit, you no longer have to satisfy the lustful cravings of the fleshly man. This is not just of a sexual orientation, although lust does apply there, but it's every appetite that was associated with our old way of living. It's every appetite that was natural. It was an inheritance. It was what we were born into and we spent years and years, some of us decades, discipling these appetites to be satisfied in a particular way. And that's why it is of ultimate importance when we get born again that we enter into discipleship because one of the primary necessities for discipleship is to recondition these new appetites to no longer attempt to be satisfied by old ways of living because our infrastructure our programming has changed and being filled with the Spirit is problematic because it's no longer compatible with your old way of living. And so as a new creation, you can't be satisfied with the things that the old appetite told you was right and seemed to come natural. Because now you have a new nature. And we're a company of people with a new nature. And now what flows from this new nature is of a divine source. These new appetites are in alignment with what Matthew says in chapter 5 is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because now we know what God says is right. And we are hungering and thirsting for a life that would be in right alignment with the proper way to demonstrate the work that is actually happening on the inside of us. Because the worst scenario is to have a language that is then contradicted by your lifestyle. Where people hear what you say, but you have to keep them at a distance so that they don't see how you live. Where it's no do as I say, but don't do as I do, because if you see what I do, then you'll no longer listen to what I say. So we don't just want language. I'm all for the memes and the bumper stickers and all the Devo tags and all this stuff, but we don't just want language, right? I'm all for Christian merch. Yo, I'm all about the merch. I'm all about the merch. We make our own merch too. But it ain't just about the language. The language is representative of a lifestyle that has been fundamentally transformed by God. And now out of a new way of living, we have a new way of speaking that reorients everyone seeing what I do to the values that I communicate. Paul would say it in Philippians 4.9, everything that you have heard, and seen, learned, and received in me. Do these things. 
So as a family of new creatures, last night we attempted to take a peek at God's jealousy for this people that he's promised his son. And as we turn our attention tonight to Acts 13, it was necessary for us to consider the makeup of the church from God's perspective and from a biblical orientation, right? Where we're not considering the church just by way of cultural definitions, right? Not the church as an event center, not the church as a popularity club, not the church as some narcissistic, driven, um, uh, political-oriented, finance, uh, all, all of this types of nonsense. No, no, no. Um, because the church is not an event. The church is not something that happens in a 60-minute, 90-minute, 120-minute, or if you're really going for it, three-hour window on Sunday. The church is not something that happens that you attend while it's happening. And we have to answer this in our own heart when we ask ourselves, what is the church? Because our definitions create our expectations and then they measure our level of participations. And if I consider the church to be an event that happens on Sundays and I just need to attend it while it's happening, well, that means that it happens with or without me because it's something that's abstract. But the church is not an event, no more than I am a birthday party. Now, I might be a party if you spend time with me. I mean, I, I think I'm a pretty fun guy. <laughs> that might be my own opinion. Right? You can think whatever you want about yourself until you involve other people in your life. It's one of the reasons we need relationships. To authenticate how transformed we say we are. The, the, the fruit of the Spirit is only necessary in a relational context. I don't need the fruit of the Spirit in the secret place. Jesus is amazing. Even when I'm getting rebuked, it's glorious. I need the fruit of the Spirit when I'm with you. I need patience and kindness and forgiveness. And I realize how much of that I don't have whenever I get into greater depths of actual relational proximity to people. And so I say, Lord, I need your help because these things that I know how to say, they're not evident in the way that I live. Ay, ay, ay. But, but, I, but I am not a birthday party. It would be absurd for you at some point to consider, well, Michael Dow has now become a birthday party. Even if I hosted a birthday party once a week, you wouldn't call me a birthday party. Oh, it's super funny. Even if I hosted a birthday party twice a week, you wouldn't call me a birthday party. But that's the whole point. The events that we might host were never meant to primarily define us. We don't receive our definition through the events that we host. We don't find our primary identification as some event center. We don't find our primary identification out of any of these unique cultural and or event-oriented ways of bringing an understanding to who we are together as a people, right? If 2020 should have done anything, it should have proved to the church that it's not a birthday party. When we lost our events of such, many lost their bearings. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know who they were. 
They were hanging on and praying for revival, which in a newer way of translation just meant the restoration of things that once were. Regaining traction with the things that we've always known, right? But we're not primarily defined as an event. The scripture and God himself by the spirit primarily defines the church as a family of born again, new creatures. The family is a Jesus people. It is these Hebrews 11 exiles. It is this heavenly colony, wildly transformed, whose lives have been pledged in a covenant love and allegiance to Jesus as King. He is king, he is Lord. We have come under his yoke, which means his love and his leadership now define us and direct us. Our sense of very being and our source of discipleship is now found in his love and his leadership. And this is who we are together. And out of that, wherever you plant us, our way of life together is going to involve certain aspects, but there might be seasons where luxuries may be afforded to us as they are over here in the West. We're not right now locked up in a room with the doors chained, with the windows blocked, with secret knocking patterns, hostile, wild, raging ideologies, religious groups and peoples looking for us, scouting out the leaders of our work, waiting for an opportunity to kick the door down, rush in, beat us to death, burn us alive, cut our heads off, jail us. We're not awaiting that type of moment. We have freedoms here that are not afforded in other places around the world. And so we will use these luxuries as long as they are opportunities. But we don't major on the minors. Here in the West, we've majored on the minors and minored on what's major to God. And we've gone hard on the luxuries and we've ignored the things that are of absolute necessity because there has to come a point where you ask yourself, what does God need in order to develop a powerful person? What does he need? I have friends around the world in different hostile countries that can't gather with a hundred people. Would you tell them they're failing? Would you tell them that they're just not there yet because they don't have what's our Americanized, biggie-sized version of Christianity in a conference entertainment-driven model? Would you tell them that they were lacking in stature or substance or quality of affirmment from God? I have friends in the Middle East. I have friends in all over the place. Would you tell them that because they can't do what it is with all the glistening lights and the lights camera action and all the personalities and all of the well-known superstars, would you tell them that they were somehow second class in the kingdom? What does God need? There are verses that are troubling in the Bible that should provoke us to ask questions that we might not have ever asked. Consider Daniel chapter one. We're gonna get to Acts, I didn't forget. And not just Acts, but Acts 13 and maybe a variety of other places too. I love the Bible. Daniel chapter one, in the third year of King Jehoiakim, By the hand of the Lord, the children of Israel 
were given over to King Nebuchadnezzar and sent into exile. These verses should trouble us. They should trouble all of our assumptions of who we think God is, how we want him to conform to our image and preserve our little bubble of comfort. These verses should provoke us to ask questions that we've never asked, possibly. By the hand of the Lord, they were shipped off into exile, pagan land, wicked ruler, hostile antagonistic leadership. We're talking the domain of darkness, Babylon, one of the most wicked people groups on the face of the earth. I'm talking ferocious wickedness, idolatry, I mean, to the heavens. The great harlot of Babylon in the book of Revelation, the Babylon system at the end of the age, Babylon, they're shipped off into exile. And in a moment's notice, everything that they have ever known in order to identify themselves as God's people. No more public gatherings, no more public reading of the scriptures. We're gonna change your names. We're gonna force you to learn a different culture, a different language. You are no longer publicly able to identify in ways that you've always been able to identify to somehow credit yourself with a faithfulness and a fruitfulness before God himself. All of that removed in a moment. But what we find in the book of Daniel is that God is not afraid of the dark. And the Lord is not intimidated with hostile territory. We find a man and a small company of people that thrive in the midst of a pagan, hostile, wicked culture. Daniel reads through quickly over 12 chapters, but we find that Daniel as a teenager is introduced into this scenario. As a teenager... As a teenager, your whole country is ravaged by wickedness and enslaved by one of the most corrupt and idolatrous people on the face of the earth. As a teenager, Daniel has enough stature in God to not just hide and self-preserve, but he thrives and is a powerful influence over more than seven decades and five kings. More than 70 years in Babylon, God is with him. There's a stature, there's an excellent spirit, there's a quality of devotion, there's a life of consecration. Daniel is a powerful man in a corrupt land and he is a bright light in a perverse darkness. How? I believe it's a way of life that Daniel would have known as he was raised. And that's what's gonna be important to understand and to frame in the things that we're about to consider out of Acts 13. Because in Acts 13, it begins by saying, in Antioch, there's a church. That's verse one. Now, what you need to understand is that they're in Antioch because of persecution. Antioch is a result of persecution in Jerusalem. We have the outpouring of the spirit. The church is thriving over decades. Not thriving because they're living in comfort, but thriving because of the tension of corruption. They're thriving because there's a cost that has to be considered. People are being beaten in the streets. Man, I'm telling you, we think it a little bit differently about claiming to be a Christian if we started seeing our brothers and sisters getting beaten in the streets. 
They're being jailed. They're being publicly executed while all of the rivals and the competitors and the hostile religious antagonists are standing over their bodies and applauding the martyr. And there's persecution because of a wild man named Saul who has a governmental letter to find them, to rip them out of their homes, to jail them, to beat them publicly in the streets and to even stand over them as they're being stoned to death, approving the very execution of one of the church leaders in Acts 7 is Stephen. But the persecution of Saul is important to understand because it's actually what cracked Jerusalem and forced them to obey the command of Jesus. You might be wondering, what am I talking about? Jesus told them in Acts chapter one, power is gonna come on you. And power has an agenda. It's not just a free-for-all. I'm sending power from heaven because I want witnesses. And witness is an interesting term because in a legal sense, in a courtroom, they provide evidence. And this is what power is for. Power is for transformation to produce an evidence. Because the Lord is looking for evidence. And evidence is via transformation. We can say whatever we want to say, but it's a transformed life that actually provides evidence. It's this born again transformation that actually leads to being conformed to his image when we come under his yoke and his teaching and his leadership changes us as we obey him. And as we obey him, we become like the one who is the word as we live the word. And we'll get to that. We have no shot to look like the one who is the word embodied if we don't have a desire to obey the word. We live Bible. And by living Bible, that's how we get to look like Jesus. But Jesus said power's coming. And power's gonna turn you into a witness. Power is going to wildly change you and you are gonna be evidence to the rest of the world. And now as evidence to the rest of the world, it is my goal that you would be evidence in Jerusalem, Samaria, where else? Judea and even unto the ends of the earth. Well, the issue is comfort at times creates resistance. And the church is thriving under corrupt tension, but it's not actually extending by way of obedience to what Jesus actually commanded them. And the church for more than a decade remained in Jerusalem. And it took the persecution of Saul to actually push them to the places that Jesus instructed them to go with the gospel. You see, sometimes pain and persecution is working for you. Sometimes pain and persecution is to push you beyond the threshold of comfort that preserved you from going all the way into the things that Jesus required of you. Sometimes we need someone from the outside to push us in the direction that Jesus has always been pulling us. But most oftentimes we just get our eyes on the people that are pushing us rather than equally on the God that's been pulling us. And because you won't be sensitive to the pull, he has to raise up a man on the other side that will begin to push. Joseph says it this way in Genesis 50, 20. I spent a long time being mad at you guys. When he sees his brothers again, He's been exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. He's the second most powerful man in the land. 
He spent a long time waiting to get even. And when he finally has them, he has all of the power to justify avenging himself. And he himself is weeping. And he says, I've spent a long time being mad at you guys. And I've waited for this day. But let me show you what gospel power does. He says, but now I realize that what you thought you were trying to do to kill me, God was actually using to push me. God was actually using to further me. God was actually using to elevate me. God was actually using to advance his cause and his purpose in me. But now I realize that it wasn't just you. And so I'm no longer mad at you because I've realized that God was involved and that God was using you to do something to me that in the moment I was offended because all I could see was you pushing me. But now I realize that it wasn't just you pushing me, but all along it was God that was pulling me. And he says, I have a different perspective as I'm reflecting back over the history of my life. Sometimes things only make sense when we look back, right? Hindsight is always 2020, right? The Monday morning quarterback, as they call it. But they're in Antioch because of persecution. And they're there, and it says that they are in the church there at Antioch. Now, we've already defined the church. It's a family of new creatures. It's the expression of one new man. It's the reconciliation of all of the hostile divides that saturate the world system influenced by the sway of the wicked one. It's on every single level and layer, space and place of society where the world gives us a reason to embrace a hostility between one another. It is the reconciliation only made possible by gospel power. And we know that because in Acts 13, 1, it not only says that there's a church in Antioch, but it gives us the names of five guys. Barnabas, who's a Mediterranean man. As a matter of fact, at the end of Acts 4, we find out that Barnabas is a Levite from Cyprus. And we realize this because he is the one that is noted as selling a property you remember what Numbers 18, 20 said of the Levites? And you will be different than the rest of the tribes for you will have no material possession in the land like the rest of your brothers and the rest of their tribal people. I will be your inheritance. I will be everything to you. I will be your possession and you will be mine. And we find Levi, who's a, or a Levite, Barnabas, is a Levite. We find Simeon, also known as Niger, who's an African man. So you have a Mediterranean man, you have an African man, you have Lucius of Cyrene, and then you have Manaean, who's a Roman, and you have Saul, who's a Jew. You have a Jew, an African, a Mediterranean. You have uh, all of them together, the reconciliation of the nations. And you have prophets and teachers. The reconciliation of gift mix, where it's not a prophetic stream. 
It's not a teaching stream. It's not an apostolic stream. It's not a pastoral bend, but it's prophets and teachers reconciled from the nations there together as a family of new creatures, as a local expression. They're there together and every divide has been reconciled. Every possible conversation to permeate division between us has been satisfied by the one who has become our peace. They're not there playing church. They're there as a family of new creatures. They're there as a redeemed creation. They're there as a blood-bought people. They're there living as heavenly ambassadors. For Paul says again, for if any man be in Christ, old things have passed, all things have become new. And that man is a new creature. And these new creatures are there gathered together at Antioch. And they're there gathered together at Antioch from the nations. A variety of backgrounds, social classes, ethnic status. This was the most absurd reality possible. They used every category and conversation as a way to divide people. Imagine the hostility that constantly fell on Jesus for eating with people that other people deemed he had no business actually spending time with. It was a hostile idea to share a meal with someone that was not considered to be unequal to you or relevant in a way of providing a benefit to you. And they raged against him. All throughout the book of Luke, Jesus is criticized for eating and drinking with people. And you find the phrase, for the son of man came eating with so-and-so, eating and drinking with these folks. But there they are in Antioch together. And there in Antioch, they have a way of life together that has come under the yoke of Jesus. And it's a beautiful reality. And I believe that Acts is trying to reveal something because Acts is not just history. Acts should equally be viewed as prophecy. Acts is not just a historical account because what was required in the beginning is going to be required at the end. What established this thing in its onset is going to be required for this thing as we lean in towards history's climax. Before the return of the Son of Man riding on the cloud, there is a prototype here in Acts that Acts is trying to communicate. And I believe that these Antioch communities, this Acts 13 reality is something that God is prescribing for what it is that he sees of a necessity for these family of new creatures. It's a way of life together that the Bible is not just suggesting for those that aren't introverts. I'm glad Jesus wasn't an introvert. <laughs> that he didn't just FaceTime in from heaven. But they have a way of life together. And their way of life is represented in verse number two. So we have a church that's in Antioch. It's a family of new creatures, a reconciliation of the nations. There's a beautiful gift mix. There's a, there's a melting pot, if you would, of ethnicities and also giftings. And what are they doing together? They're ministering to the Lord. 
They're fasting. Depending on your translation, they're worshiping. They're praying. Oh, that the church would rediscover its ultimate ministry, its ultimate responsibility. And that's first love. That's ministering to the Lord. The church there at Antioch is not ministering to the Lord as an emergency case because they're experiencing some sort of unique tension because they need some sort of breakthrough in an area that seems to be impossible. The verb tense there reveals that it's a way of life. It's not suggesting a one and done, like, oh, all hell is breaking loose, we gotta fast and pray. No, there was something that they knew. There was a way that they had planted a way of life together. There was a way of life that had been reoriented around the person of Jesus and a first love ministry to him loving him above all things, living with a divine possession and a divine fascination that provoked them into a lifestyle of ministering to God, fasting, praying, and worshiping, not just every once in a while, but as a way of life together. And it's important as a way of life together. They came under the beautiful yoke of Jesus. And why is it necessary to consider a life of ministering to the Lord? Yes, individually, I get that. But again, the story is not about us uniquely individually. Jesus saves people to make them a part of a people. And the I is not greater than the us. Woo. Teach us how to pray. Pray this way. Our Father. The whole word should just radically reorient our entire way of thinking. Our Father. Our. The I is not greater than the us. And they're together as a way of life ministering to the Lord. And what does this mean? What this means is that together they've established that the person of Jesus in the midst of them that their contention is going to be a presence-centered people. That their heart cry, their very life worth and investment is going to be going after this man as a living habitation. With our lives being knit together, he is using our lives knit together to create a living habitation for himself by the power of his spirit. And together, as a way of life, they were contending for a living habitation. And you cannot have a living habitation without the prominence of worship. Because you cannot separate the ideas of worship and government. Psalm 22, 3 would say it this way. He is enthroned on the praises of his people. You can't separate the two ideas of worship and government. As a matter of fact, these glimpses that we get throughout the New Testament and the Old, wherever you catch a throne room vision, wherever you see the throne, you find worship. Isaiah chapter six, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up and his throne Right, The train of his robe filled the temple, but immediately as the curtain of heaven was pulled back, I saw a throne. 
and one seated on the throne and all of heaven's response to being able to gaze upon the man on the throne is to worship. Ezekiel chapter one. There I am in this year, on this month with these folks out by the river Kibar and all of a sudden the hand of the Lord came on me and I was taken into visions of God and the heavens were opened and I saw a throne and on the throne was one radiant and glorious, beautiful in every possible way and surrounding him was worship. This revelation for reality come up here. This is our call. This is our way of life. Come up here. Gaze upon the worthy one sitting on the throne. And even in Revelation 4, you find elders casting crowns. You find creatures winged with eyes in and out singing songs. You find angelic hosts surrounding and abounding with joy-filled wonder and song. And then you find this people from tribe, nation, and tongue in Revelation 5 all joining in in their joy-filled awe and wonder singing and worshiping the man, Jesus. And there at Antioch, they're there together as a way of life in worship because you can't separate the ideas. And it's important that we understand what is actually happening in the place of worship so that we can recalibrate the attention and the affection of our hearts towards God's agenda and not just ours. Because worship is not for us although God is using worship to serve his purposes in us. Worship is not for us. It's not, man, I've been in a bad mood today. Oh, I just got to get into some worship. Oh, I just, man, I, I, it's been a rough week. Like, I, I, I need worship. No, 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 no. Worship is not for you. Worship is not some fix Worship is not some emotional zing or high. Worship is the response. It's the eruptive response of one that has been privileged to see him. Right? Worship is a joy-filled eruption that happens, yes, spontaneously, whenever our eyes are able to gaze upon him in a fresh or a real way. Worship is not something that has to be hyped up whenever I actually see him because the ones that are actually able to see him respond to him in the only way that is right and appropriate and that is to worship. But worship's not for you. Worship is for him because he is the only one that is actually capable of handling being worshiped. I want you to consider it this way. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means that we believe, we believe this, that he is beautifully, consistently himself at all times. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that means he's not changing, and that's why he can be trusted. Because he's unchanging. Well, that also means that he is unchanged by our devotional efforts. (sighs) 
It doesn't matter how much you fast and pray. He's not changing. It doesn't matter how long you worship. He's not changing. Your devotional efforts are not attempts to make him something that he already is not. You cannot manipulate him through attention or affection to be something that would make him decide to be something that he already has not decided to be. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means no 40-day fast, no 24-hour burn. None of these things are changing him. So if none of these things are changing him, then who's the one that's actually being changed through the invitation to worship him? Because again, he's the only one that can be worshiped consistently and still beautifully be himself. And he's able to be trusted because he's not changed by our affection or devotion. Now, it's not that it doesn't move him. It just doesn't change him. And the realities are different. Because out of insecurity, if he was rushing, trying to be everything that you thought he should be, well, then he wouldn't be all powerful. Because man pleasing is the mountaintop of insecurity. Because man pleasing is more about me than it is about you. Because the way that you think about me affects me more than it does you. And so I have to change how you think or feel about me in order for me to feel better. But God is not this way. Think about this. More than 7 billion people on the planet right now. And most of them have a wildly inaccurate idea about who he is. And he is still consistently and beautifully himself. Man, some of us can't handle a negative comment on social media. (laughs) Much less 7 billion plus opinions about who I am. And I'm still beautifully, consistently being myself. Because I would suggest to you that God is the only person in the entire universe that can be trusted to handle being worshiped forever and ever and ever. And that's because it does not actually change him because humans don't have the capacity to be worshiped. (sighs) We weren't meant to be worshiped because it changes us. We, we don't have the capacity to be worshipped. We, we, we don't. We don't have the capacity to be worshipped. And that's why the story was never meant to be about us, because we couldn't handle it. It was never meant to be about my influence, my gifting, my name, my fame, my credit. It, it was never meant to be about us, because we don't have the capacity to handle being worshipped. But God does. And through the invitation to worship, he provides us with a reference point that is more beautiful than anything we've ever seen. Most of the woes of the world, God's solution to solve them is with the revelation of his son. He says, look at Jesus. Look at him. And in gazing upon the beauty of Jesus, we are privileged to find a reference point that produces an awe and a wonder 
in the human heart and a depth of satisfaction that is meant to conquer all of the attention and the affection that we give to lesser level lovers and the idols that we become so familiar worshiping. Because whatever we turn our affection and attention to over time disciples us. There we find our primary place of discipleship. Where you have your well of worship, you find your primary place of discipleship. Those of us who worship our careers, everything begins to orbit around all of our career ambitions. Everything gets readjusted and it all gets shuffled with a priority of this being the main thing. And with this being the main thing, every other thing has to be sacrificed because of the importance of what it is that I've esteemed above the rest. For those of us that worship a variety of things in consideration, whatever becomes the main thing, every other thing is going to serve and be sacrificed in the consideration of what you've determined is the place that is captured your attention and affection. David would have said this one thing I ask, and this is what I seek. David, a man of unique responsibilities. David, a man who had all types of things going on in life. As a matter of fact, Psalm 27 even opens with the difficulties that David is experiencing in a hard season. There's enemies and adversaries and war that abounds around me. I have those that are seeking to devour my flesh. And David says, even in the midst of this, I'm not asking for breakthrough. I'm not asking for unique strategy to get even with my enemies. I'm not asking for rest from all of those that are seeking to devour my flesh. If I get one thing, if there's only one thing, if I get one thing that I can ask for, this is gonna be the thing that's gonna, divide, that's gonna define my life. I wanna be in his house. I want to stare at his face. I want to linger long and gaze deep. Because if I get this one thing, then every other thing is going to find its right place. If I get this one thing to be the main thing, then every other thing that God makes me responsible for will function the way that God desires. If I get this one thing and establish it deeply as the one thing main thing, then all my other responsibilities, then all my other areas of faithfulness, than all of my other desires or times of demands where I'm giving myself in a variety of responsibilities. The one thing is the only thing that is going to allow me to successfully give myself to everything that God might ask of me. And David says, if I get one thing, this is gonna be it. This is gonna be the thing that divides my life. I'm going after him. I'm gonna live a life of worship. I'm gonna live a life of worship. David in 1 Chronicles 15 is esteemed with bringing the ark and planting it back in the center of the city. This is extraordinary. It's been more than 70 years, he says in 1 Chronicles 13, since the days of Saul that we've actually sought for the ark. 
David is saying we've learned how to reorient our lives to systems and religious formats and all types of other responsibilities in life. And we've gotten deeply entrenched in a methodology that has brought us to a place where we know how to live and function without the priority of presence. But David is saying it is time to bring the presence back and not just bring it back, but we're gonna put it down in the middle of us and establish it in the center and if it's in the center Jesus be the center if it's in the center then every other thing is going to have to reorient itself to now what is the main thing and David brings the ark into Jerusalem and he slams it down in the center of the city and now the ark is there under a tent don't think some camping trip tent it's a massive monstrosity of a tent and he has thousands, more than 4,000 Levites day and night, night and day because only the beauty of God is able to sustain the human heart in an unending way. Only the beauty of God is able to touch and satisfy so deeply the attention and the affection of the human heart. Only the beauty of God can create an, an obsession in our lives that though we taste and see creates greater and more ferocious and provoking hunger that though at times it seems like the, the exact opposite we've tasted but yet we're hungrier than we've ever been I feel as if I've been satisfied but I can't get enough of you and David brings the presence back into the center of the city because David understood what it is that we're talking about he was the earthly king, but they had to bring their lives subject to the king of kings because David understood I sit on an earthly throne, but there's one seated on the only throne that matters. And if we don't bring our lives subject to him, David's desire to establish night and day, day and night worship in prayer. And yes, it's because God is worth this. Yes, it's because his beauty alone sustains this. What do I mean? There's no human personality dynamic enough to sustain 24 seven day and night, night and day. There's no gifting attractive enough to sustain day and night, night and day. But the beauty of God eclipses all of the gifting of man. The beauty of God is supreme above every voice and personality you've ever been touched by or provoked by. The beauty of God is able to do in the midst of us what no one of us with other unique incentives is ever gonna be able to accomplish. And David says, we've gotta get his presence in the midst. And we've got to submit to him as king because this is primarily what's happening in the place of worship. Worship should be facilitating greater depths of surrender to the lordship of Jesus. Worship should be cultivating deeper depths of surrender to our lives coming under his yoke. And what do I mean by that? Matthew Jesus says it this way in 1128, come to me, all of you who are weary, all of you that are tired, you're burdened of trying to figure out your own life, 
trying to do it your own way, trying to dance through and jump through religious hoops of performance, all of you trying to work for my attention and my affection, come to me and I will give you rest. But then he says, learn from me because I'm humble. We're not even going to have time to touch on that. God is humble. He's humble enough to let you know the best thing you could do is spend more time with him. <laughs> if any one of you said that, it might be a little bothering. Like we may be a little concerned. Like, bro, I'm humble enough to tell you that you need more time with me. Because I'm amazing. And the more time you spend with me, you're going to become more like me. And it's okay because that's actually what you need. You need to be less like you and more like me. So spend more time with me and you're gonna become more like me. And it's all right, I get it. Like it may seem a little strange, but I'm humble enough to tell you that's what you need in your life. <laughs> Jesus says, come to me, I'm humble, learn from me, right? So it's not just come to me, it's come to me, in gazing and spending more time with me, learn from me. And learn from me by taking my yoke upon you. A yoke in the ancient days, in rabbinical terms, was the teaching of a rabbi. You would become yoked to a certain teacher which means his sayings, his phrases, his way of life, you would seek to mirror, to embody, to replicate. You were longing to become like, which is why he says no student is greater than the teacher. In rabbinical terms, the yoke was the teaching. He says, come to me, actually come to me. Not your own idea of me, not who you want me to be. You have to see me rightly. See me rightly and come to me. And as you come to me, Spend time with me, and as you spend time with me, learn from me, because there's an agenda in you being with me. I want you to learn from me. I'm opening myself to you to create a reference point for you to see something unlike you've ever seen, and in seeing what you've ever seen, now producing in you something that you've never ever been able to become on your own. You have to be with him to become like him. Right? This isn't self-made Christianity where we try to become Christian in our own ways, where we come up with all these unique little methods and versions to become our own model of Christian. No, we already have a model of Christian and it's the Christ. And he's the pattern. He's the example. He's the prototype. He is the image to which now all of our lives are being conformed. So we have to look at the man Jesus to know the desire that God has for every one of our lives. Because the father promised the son a Jesus people. But that means something. And we have to come under the yoke of Jesus to become a Jesus people. And I'm grateful that the first reference of worship in the Bible has nothing to do with songs or instruments. <laughs> because worship isn't necessarily about songs and instruments, although at times those things are vitally important. The first mention of worship has nothing to do with stages, singers, lights, songs, 
but it has everything to do with a man's difficulty to come under the yoke of the Lord. In Genesis 22, verse 5, we find the first mention of worship. And if you're familiar with Genesis 22, you find that it's God testing Abraham. And it says, and sometime later, what does that let us know? Is that Abraham has been through a variety of seasons. There's been all kinds of difficulty. He has been challenged to walk with God in a consecrated, devoted way. And yet after decades of walking faithfully with the Lord, Genesis 22 says, and sometime later, God circles back around to a man that he already knows loves him and has been tested by him. And he comes back to him to do what? to test him again. And sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I gave you a son, but I'm gonna ask you for him. I gave him to you, but I want you to give him to me. Bring him to the mount that I will reveal to you and there on the mount, sacrifice him to me. And the Bible says that Abram gets up early the next morning to obey the Lord. There's something about an urgency in our obedience that is beautiful to the Lord, right? We actually have a barometer of how we can test at times if we love him the way that we think we do. And that's through obedience. And that's not my own opinion. That's John 14, 15. Jesus says, those that love me will be the ones that obey me. And he actually says it several times more in the following verses until he concludes that thought in John 14, 24, by then saying the opposite for those who haven't gotten it. He says in a variety of ways, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you belong to me and you're actually committed to me and want to demonstrate love for me, you will obey my commandments. Those that love me will be those that I know, they know me, they will know my voice and what I'm asking of them, they will joyfully give themselves to in obedience. But then in verse 24, he says the opposite. But those who don't obey me, they actually are the ones that don't love me. So obedience is not an issue of works, it's a matter of love. If you have difficulty obeying, it's not because you have a problem with working. If we're having difficulty in obedience, it's because we have not been joyfully conquered in the place of love. We are those who have been joyfully conquered and now can follow the lamb wherever he goes. My life does not belong to me. You have loved me to the end of myself. And now I will do anything you say. I will go anywhere you lead. And even when confronted by death itself, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, not loving their very lives, even when the consideration of death was before them. Those who have been joyfully conquered don't live in a vacuum of self-preservation for they have no dream to preserve nor idea of themselves that they're trying to establish. They've been joyfully conquered. I belong to you because you've given yourself to me. And now I will be yours forever and ever and ever. And here we have a man in Genesis 22 that is finding it difficult to come under the yoke of the Lord. Get up tomorrow and start the journey to sacrifice your son. And he gets up early. We talk much of abiding. 
John 15, Jesus gives us one of the ways that we can secure an abiding life. In John 15, 10, he says, obeying my commands is one of the ways that you abide in my love. <laughs> You'll never have to wonder where he is when you're obeying him. but you'll always feel distant when you're in disobedience. Notice I didn't say you will be distant, you'll always feel distant when you're in disobedience. But John 15, 10, when you obey my commands, it's actually one of the ways that you abide in my love. In Genesis 22, Abraham is getting up to sacrifice his son and he's coming under the yoke. He's coming under the instruction his place of worship is leading him to faithfully obey the instruction or the commandments of the Lord. He doesn't see them as some rigid, cold, calloused list of religiosity, but he sees them as a way to keep intimate proximity to the one that he's given his life to. And we have to understand that one of the ways that the father is going to give the son a Jesus people is by conforming a people to the image of Jesus. And Jesus is the word incarnate. He is the word that takes on flesh. He is the word tabernacling in the midst of men in John chapter one. For in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And that word that was God with God creating alongside of God in the very beginning is now the one that is tabernacling in the midst of men. So when we look at Jesus, we find the consistency of the teachings of Jesus, which means that there's no conflict between his life and the scriptures. This is amazing, right? But we're gonna bring it home. This is awesome. There is no conflict between the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. There is no conflict between the life of Jesus and the scriptures. That means that in our life journey of discipleship, more and more and more, as we are through the place of worship and adoration, gazing upon the man Jesus, we should be being brought into greater depths and dimensions of surrender, which means we are consistently coming to him. He is putting his yoke on us his love and his leadership is now what matters to us. And that vehicle is now what God is using to transform our lives, which means that through the life journey of discipleship, when I look at this Bible, it should line up with the lifestyle that I see you living. And all that means is we live Bible now. That's what that means. Coming under the yoke of Jesus means I live Bible now. It means the word and the influence of the spirit is my primary place of discipleship. Gazing upon Jesus, submitting to his leadership, the life journey of discipleship means he wants me to look like him. He's the embodiment of the word. I've got to get in this word and start living this word consistently if I actually want to look like him. which means I'm not looking to culture for discipleship. Yes, 
looking to Hollywood for what my love life is supposed to look like. I'm not looking to Silicon Valley and all of the gurus there for what I'm supposed to do to operate my business or what I'm supposed to do as a kingdom person, a spirit person with my finances. I'm not looking to Gary Vee or Grant Cardone because I don't follow them, I follow Jesus. And this Bible is now what's ultimate. These words are now formative in my life and not just suggestions, which means when I come to him and there's a difficulty with what I know it is that is in his teaching, I'm not first presuming that the problem is with him. I'm not only in divine alignment in the areas where God has secured my agreement. Because he's not trying to agree with you. He didn't ask you for your opinion. This word now legislates reality for us. There's government in operation. And as subjects of a kingdom, we've come underneath the yoke of a king. And Jesus is Lord. He's not just my homeboy or some friend of mine. He's not some genie that I rub whenever I want to live a life of abundant blessing and material prosperity. Take my yoke upon you. Which means as worshipers, if I am consistently in the place of worship, but then not consistently being changed into the image of the one that I'm worshiping. What does that mean? That means I can't just come for two hours, get goosebumps, thrills, and tingles, have my fix in the place of worship, and then exit the building and go back to living my worldly life the way that I want to be satisfied. That's what that means. I found a new well of satisfaction. I found a new place of reality where this man is my dream and I forfeited every other desire. And now I'm going to come under his yoke. Man, I feel the Lord driving this home tonight. That these are not suggestions. That they're not suggestions. Man, it's time to make the word the plumb line. I don't want opinions. I want Bible. It doesn't matter how much agreement you can rally. Agreement with an error, agreement with a falsity, agreement with a non-truth does not make it any more true than it was prior to the rallying or the momentum. There is one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And the plumb line of these scriptures must become central again in the lives of worship. Worship is not a vibe. It's not an atmosphere. It's not a frill, a thrill. It's not an industry. It's not a record label. It's not some stardom. It's not a green room. It's not a flaunting of gifting. Worship is about a king whose beauty demands a response. That's what worship is about. And those of us that worship, worship in spirit and in truth. In our lives, 
coming yoked under the teaching of Jesus should become the consequence of worship. Which means when I rise from the place of worship, I should have a greater desire to obey him. When I rise from the place of worship, I should have a greater hunger and thirst for my life to be satisfied with the truth. I want to know what's truth. I want to know what's reality. I want to know where the power is. I want to know where the life source is. I want to come to the king. I want to receive his teaching. I want it to reorient my lifestyle. I want it to transform my way of thinking. I want it to dynamically rearrange all of my way of seeing and living and feeling and desiring. All of that happens not by just creating another experience but by actually planting the word in our hearts I'm all for everything else man dreams visions visitations angelic messengers I'm I'm all for it I'm for everything man let's get it on for real I want it all like it and it's amazing but when Jesus was contested in Matthew 4 out in the wilderness He didn't say, hey, bro, last night I had a dream and I saw three yellow balloons. (laughs) And I saw a tree that was bent over this way. And and bro, I know what the Lord is saying. No, he didn't say none of that. He didn't say like, hey, man, don't try me. I just came off a 40-day fast. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm supercharged. He didn't say none of that. And I'm for all these things. I'm joking a way to create a greater effect on what I'm actually trying to make the point. He said, it's written. It's written, and he pointed to Bible. This is our reality as worshipers. It is written. No, 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 you can't talk to your wife that way. It is written. No, 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 you can't do business deals that way. It is written. No, 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 you just can't rally alongside of that movement and everybody that's gaining a lot of momentum, but we're like, it is written. Like we're coming to the scriptures to inform us and to inspire us on how we live in every space and place of our lives, where every area of our life is now a revealing or a demonstration of Bible, where people look at us and read this book and say, oh, it makes sense that you would live that way because I understand your life belongs to him. And because your life belongs to him, this is the way that he is. And these are the things that he teaches. And we want this more and more and more and more. And so when it says there together as a family of new creatures in Antioch, there's a church, but that church has actually found its calling to come under the yoke of Jesus and to create a way of life together of worship and fasting and praying and contending where our lives have been branded with first love But yes, also our lives are being conformed to the image of the one who is the word. And he is changing us and making us to look like him as our lives are consistently tested by the scriptures and a joy-filled willingness to live the Bible in the most difficult or desirable circumstances. Live the Bible. Well, that means I have to become a greater student of the scriptures to know what the scriptures actually says about a variety of things of life. Live the Bible. 
And when fire hits your life, live the Bible. When they persecute you, live the Bible. As a matter of fact, persecution is the direct consequence of living under the yoke of Jesus. Or at least it should be. Right, Matthew 5? Blessed are those, happy are those, and then there's a full list of things. And the last one is blessed are you when you're persecuted. Because the idea is if you live these things consistently, you're going to be persecuted for them. Because you are not going to nicely and neatly fit into the world around you. You are going to become a confrontation. You are going to produce an intersection of confrontation. Because you were never meant to be of it, you've just been planted in it. And they're at Antioch, they're planted in it, but they're not of it. And their way of life together is actually producing a powerful witness and is actually producing the commissioning of witnesses, which we will talk about tomorrow. A way of life together that produces a certain type of person. But there at Antioch, the church has found its calling to love the Lord above everything else and to spend their life loving him and ministering to him. Because you cannot minister to the Lord and get close to his heart without him revealing instructions and releasing commissionings on how to minister to others. You minister to him and he then releases those that have ministered to him to begin ministering to others. That's the commissioning. When we establish the calling, God establishes the commissionings. We can't produce a commissioning, only God can, but we can establish the calling. And when we establish the calling and take up the priority of first love and ministry to God, God will be the one that raises up and sends out from our midst. And I just believe that the Lord is inviting us into a greater depth of creating a living habitation. And this is something that is going to uniquely, personally, affect all of us because we are going to come under the yoke of Jesus. What does that mean? The invitation is come to me. Spend time with me, be with me and learn from me. And out of being with me, take my yoke upon you, which means I will give grace for joy-filled obedience. And I believe the Lord is inviting us to obey him in every small, seemingly insignificant, unseen way, which possibly will be our consideration tomorrow that God is extraordinary in ordinary places, that he goes big in things that the rest of the world says is small and insignificant. But God has a different value system than we do. And so we can't scale obedience by way of the world's value system, meaning what's important, what's not important. How do you determine what's important and what's not important? How do you say, well, what has God ever said that's not important? Let's start there. (laughs) Everything God says is important. But I believe the Lord is inviting us to greater places of obedience in insignificant unseen, 
not before the lights, camera, action. It may just be the Lord and the Lord only that knows about the sacrificial way that you are giving him a yes. The painful place that you are breaking open the alabaster box and giving him the oil that he desires. It may only be for his eyes, but he's inviting us into deeper depths of obedience. Take my yoke on you. Take my yoke on you. Take my yoke on you. Let my teaching bring you in. I want to bridle you. Right? Bridling is in horse terms. Where you don't necessarily want to embarrass a wild and strong animal, but you just want to bring all of its strength and resolve subject to the rider. To the one that has rested upon him. I don't want to break you, shame you. Because your strength is useful. I just want your strength to be submitted to me. I want you to come to me. And to stop all of the wild resistance. To stop the wrestling and the resisting. Come to me. And out of spending time with me, obey me. This should be the life of a worshiper. Obedience should be the byproduct of worship. Because he is enthroned upon the praises of his people. He's enthroned. Which means where there's worship, there's government. So in the place of worship, I am surrendering in greater measure to his government over my life. My life no longer belongs to me. I worship you, King Jesus. I don't worship the things of this world. They no longer have my attention, my affection. They're not even discipling me. I'm coming to you. And in being with you, I want to learn from you. And I want to rise from the place of worship to obey you. In what space or conversation of your life is the Lord asking for obedience? Man, this is between us and Jesus. Right? Because we want to uniquely create a habitation individually. Because David was entrusted to establish presence publicly because presence had become everything to him privately. And he had sacrificed and recalibrated his life to presence privately and therefore he was entrusted to establish presence and a reorienting of culture publicly. Right? At times we want to attempt to do things publicly that we've not yet surrendered to privately. And I'm living, I'll say wildly, I just mean my own way. With my own demands, I'm living by my own wisdom, I'm doing my own thing privately. David had sacrificed and made every adjustment necessary. This one thing had rearranged his life privately. Everything about David's life was rearranged around the man Jesus and his presence, but is ours. And because everything had gotten rearranged publicly, God commissioned a man to rearrange things publicly. Privately, David was rearranged, commissioned then publicly to bring reform reformation. 
We need formation privately so that we can be agents of reformation publicly. We have to become disciples because the idea is disciples actually disciple. And so in what way is the Lord asking you for obedience? Maybe you've known for quite some time, like Jonah. Well, I know what God wants, I just don't agree with him. Does God have to have your agreement in order to have your obedience? I know what God wants, I just don't agree with him. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he doesn't think those wicked people deserve God's grace. And as a matter of fact, the book closes with Jonah being mad at God for being himself. I knew you would do this. That's why I didn't want to go. But we praise Jonah because he rocks the city with the announcement of the gospel. But we don't understand the distance in between the initial invitation and Jonah's yielding to the Lord that brought him to the place where he was willing to do what it is that God was asking him to do. And as a matter of fact, Jonah wasn't, I'll submit, doing it out of desire. He just desired to no longer get in trouble. But we have to create a living habitation individually. And then together as we come together corporately, man, we want God dwelling in the midst of us, creating a habitation for himself as he's knitting together the lives of these new creatures that are now worshipers. Let's all stand together over the room. Holy Spirit, I pray tonight that you would absolutely pierce every one of our hearts with a revelation of the beauty of God. Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts to see the man Jesus. Open the eyes of our hearts tonight to see him high and lifted up, shining in the light and the radiance of his glory. Open the eyes of our hearts tonight If we've been resisting, it is quite possible because we've been having difficulty seeing. Lord, would you show us your face? 
you show us your face? And I pray, would you touch our hearts tonight? Touch our hearts tonight. We want to worship you, but we want to demonstrate our love for you by the way that we obey you. Lord, bring us under your yoke. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. What price are you willing to pay to become a living habitation? What cost are you willing to consider to become a living habitation? Are you willing to purchase the whole field because you found the pearl? Lord, I pray, touch our hearts tonight and give us grace to obey you. We want to be a living habitation. We want to be a place of abiding. We want you abiding intimately, powerfully in our midst. Bring the ark into the center of our hearts and our homes. Bring the ark into the center of this house. Let a divine canopy of your glory be established over this city and region. Bring this region under divine dominion, the government of God, by a people whose lives, that hearts have become subject to the reality of a king. Rule in the midst of us, King Jesus, by ruling over us. Rule in the midst of us. We offer you our hearts and lives. Rule in the midst of us. We worship you, lamb that was slain. Rule in the midst of us. We ascribe to you with awe-filled wonder, joy-filled adoration. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy of my yes. You are worthy of my obedience. You are worthy of my life. Come on, I feel the Lord pulling us in tonight. It's time to become a living habitation. It's no longer okay just to settle for it in public spaces. The Lord wants a private devotion, a personal consecrated reality. Establish the ark in your heart and home and let everything be rearranged with presence as the priority. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. Give us grace for this in our hearts and homes. Do it, Lord. Presence as the priority. Presence ruling over the TV.
presence ruling over the laptop, ruling over the iPad, ruling over what I'm scrolling on my phone, presence across what's coming out of the home pod, presence around the music that I listen to. Come on, Holy Spirit, may presence rearrange our lives. And may everything begin to be rearranged around the main thing. Let the main thing become the main thing. In public and in private. In private and in public. No more double-mindedness. Grace. 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 Make us a living habitation. Help us to rediscover the calling of the church to minister to the Lord, to live a life of fascination with the beauty of God, to be overtaken in our attention and our affections and to have all of our appetites redirected toward our ultimate obsession which is the man Jesus give us grace for this give us grace for this give us grace for this oh our hearts long to be a living habitation to be burning ones in an abiding way Come on, let's close out together tonight in the place of worship and adoring the Lord and asking Him by His Spirit to mark our lives with His beauty. Mark my life with your beauty and make me a living habitation. Mark my life with your beauty and make me a living habitation. I'll give anything for this. I'll pay any price. I'll consider every cost. This one thing, this one thing, this one thing. Come on, let's actually respond together tonight. Let's come to the altar. Let's fill in around the front. Come on, when you come, if you want to fall on your face, fall on your face. If you want to kneel, kneel. If you want to stand, stand. If you want to lift your hands, if you want to sit. Come on, let's ask him together. Mark my life with your beauty and make me a living habitation. Mark us tonight, Holy Spirit. Thank you again for listening today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website at www.burningones.org or download our app.